Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 10 through 21. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 17. We'll get to Romans 12 here in just a little bit, but I'd like to begin in the 17th chapter of Luke's gospel. As you turn to that, if you're new to Christ Church or this is your first time back in a while, we're glad you're with us this morning. My name's Mark. I get the privilege of preaching here uh, on occasion and I'd love to be a part of this team and we're glad you've joined us. We are in the third week of a seven-week series where we're looking at what is the evidence in our life that the Holy Spirit is changing us. How do we know that we're, we're gone beyond just trying to do good and actually being changed from the inside out? What does the transforming power of God look like in our lives compared to just giving our best and using our willpower? In Galatians chapter 5, Paul speaking to that church mentions some things called the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, the evidence of the Spirit in our lives produces what is called fruit. And so let me review where we've been the first two weeks. In week one, we have set the precedent that one of the fruits of the Spirit is love, but I would like you to picture love as the soil in which all other fruit grows. The love of God that changes us allows these other things to occur. So we began in week one with joy, and we learned that joy is not generated by us. We don't have to act happy for joy to happen. It's not circumstantial. So you can have joy in the best moments of your life, and you can have joy in the worst moments of your life. You cannot have happiness in the worst moments of your life, so joy and happiness are different. Joy comes when we embrace and enter into the gospel story. When the truth of what God has done throughout time is a part of our lives rather than a story we tell, joy will begin to show itself no matter what our circumstances are. Then last week we talked about peace. The peace of Christ in us gives us calm when calm is unreasonable. So all of a sudden we have a sense of peace. The Bible says it transcends understanding. It doesn't make sense. The math doesn't add up, but we have a calm when it should be panic. We also realize that the presence of God is what brings that to us, knowing God is with us, that when we're out of control, he never is. We also learn that the Holy Spirit was given to us as a gift to bring peace. And the way the Holy Spirit does that is he engages our minds in what we think about, and he engages our heart in what we're grateful for. So we think about the work of God and the work of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit, 
And then we thank God knowing that when our circumstances are not what we would have them to be, that God can work in all of those circumstances to bring them together. So we thank God in advance that his will's gonna win because we believe that all things work together for good to those who are called according to Christ's purposes. So we've covered joy and peace. Today we're gonna look at patience. I should be the last person in the room to speak on this topic, but I'm gonna give it my best, okay? Patience. And we're gonna look, as we have each and every week, at a moment where Jesus demonstrated or taught patience, and what does the other scriptures speak about what it looks like for you and I to be people of patience? So I'm gonna give you a long intro because I want you to understand that where we're about to go to for a preacher is dangerous. There are certain topics when you preach on them that you get uh, difficult responses to. I don't wanna say unreasonable responses, but they're difficult because it enters into real life. It enters into your realities. When I speak on divorce, there are people who have divorced someone and feel shame over why they did. And there are people who have been divorced by that someone and they carry great rejection, pain, and harm. When I speak on sexuality, it's an explosive topic in the culture today. And when we speak on biblical sexuality, it becomes more explosive. People have been hurt by the church over treatments of this, and other people become angry how the church responds or doesn't. When I speak about financial sacrifices, people are like, yeah, make me feel guilty because I'm upside down financially and I'm hardly surviving, and now you're expecting me to give a percentage to the kingdom. And, and people can cop attitudes based on their realities, not based on just they don't want to talk about hard things, but the circumstances they're in are very, very difficult to deal with and they don't know what to do. And so it's really, in moments like this, you get strong reactions. Sometimes people feel judged. Sometimes they feel challenged. And it can also make for uh, some hard conversations. Well, having said all that, today's topic is the worst because it's personal to every single one of us. It's a necessary conversation, but it's not an easy one. When I think of the patience of Jesus, remember we're basing this whole series on how Jesus displayed the fruit of the Spirit and how we are too. When I think of the patience of Jesus, I, and, yeah, some uh, your King James version of this will call it forbearance, which is really a good word because it means you're willing to leave space. You're willing to give it time. You're willing to be patient, right? How did Jesus most often display his patience? Forgiveness, the ability to forgive every single one of us, no matter what we did. And in, in that moment, the patience of Jesus is most displayed. Let's read Luke 17, verses three through six. He's speaking to people like you and I, disciples. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. In these verses, Jesus shows us what forgiveness is and what forgiveness does. He also awakens our minds to how you and I receive the ability to do this hard teaching. So hold on to those hopes as we walk through the process. What is the goal of patience? What is the goal that Jesus displayed for us 
that when he calls us to patient, forbearing forgiveness, what's the goal? Well, it's found in verse three. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Is Jesus offering us an option A, option B? Rebuke them, and if that doesn't work, forgive them. Is he saying, try this real harsh one, and then do this real kind, almost mealy-mouthed one, right? No, he's not actually giving us options A and B. He's actually showing us the goal of our forgiveness. He says, rebuke sin so that they repent. It's not denying that they've sinned. It's not denying that you've been hurt. He says, rebuke the sinful actions so that they repent and then forgive them. There's a process to this. The reason we are to forgive is because we choose to love. It's not, it's not easy to do this. A disciple will not stand by while sin is ruining another person's life. And so they will speak to the sin for the purpose of bringing Repentance. So we don't rebuke for vindication. We rebuke so lives are changed. And it's not an option A or B because sometimes it's easier to rebuke for vindication and yet we'll never forgive. We just shame. And other times, some of us, and I think most of us have done this in our lifetime, we will forgive without ever addressing the sin, without ever addressing the harm, without ever addressing the real hurt. And that is not loving. That's a coward's way out. You're actually saying, you probably had a moment where someone came up, they really offended you and you were caught off guard when they came to you and they said something like, I'm really sorry I did. You thought, oh, don't worry about it. It wasn't that big of a deal. It didn't bother me at all. You lie. It sits in your heart like a cancer. You realize you were harmed, but you weren't ready in that moment. You weren't prepared because you hadn't thought it through. And so what you did is dismiss without the rebuking. And you may say, but I didn't rebuke. Isn't that kind? Not if you were only avoiding conflict. See, Jesus has given us the goal. Love enough to address the sin and redeem the sinner. And that's a hard thing to do. There's also a patient action to Jesus' patience. There's an action that he brings. I was reading scholarship on this particular text as I was led to teach this text from a series I enjoyed. I looked at this and I thought, wow, interesting. And this is what I learned. This scholar says, some people confuse forgiveness as a feeling that leads to an action. Okay? And it's not flawed. It makes sense to us, right? If, if I can get past the anger, if I can get past the hurt, if I can get past the rejection, it, if this person shows any bit of sorrow, I can forgive them. But the scholar says, it's not a feeling that leads to an action. It's actually more difficult. It's an action that leads to the feeling. The action is the choice we make. And I was having conversations with a couple of people in the foyer after uh, first hour, and it, it, it dawned on us in our conversation that there's probably not a person in this room who would say to themselves, I am unwilling to forgive. We're probably all willing to forgive. The difficulty comes when we have to have that moment that we actually forgive. We actually release. We actually hold the superior position and we drop it so that the other person can become equal again with us. And it's in that moment that I think all of us get stuck. This is where it gets hard. Now, every, every now and then while I'm writing, so you understand my psychosis, right? Every now and then when I'm writing a sermon, I'm thinking, okay, this is the point that they're going to they're gonna cross their arms and go, really? Okay, and I get it. Because here's what I want to remind you about the core of this series. For every moment this morning, you get stuck 
with the, I don't think I can do this. You're probably right. This is why we're asking the Holy Spirit to bring to us a strength we don't have. And if you hold on to that hope, I believe God can revolutionize most of our hurts in a way that it doesn't hurt as much. It still may hurt, though. But it actually propels us. The reason I say that is look at verse 4. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. He doesn't say you shall. You could. It'd be a good idea. He says, as my disciple, forgive. Is Jesus being imperceptive here? Now, I could see, like when he says to Peter, you know, 490 times in your lifetime, 70 times seven, forgive. You're like, okay, but seven times in a day? I hear someone slandering me behind my back. I walk up on them and they say, I'm so sorry, I'll never do that again. An hour later, they do it again. And then they do it two or three more times. And I hear them on the seventh time. And at that point in time, they come back and say, repent. I'm willing for you to repent, but for the love, repent. Is Jesus like clueless as to what's really going on here? Uh, He's making an incredible point. He says, no, you must forgive them. And here's why. But I say, Jesus, where is their sincerity? Where's actual repentance? Where's their sorrow? Where's anything in their life that shows me they're really sorry for what they did? And here's the point Jesus is making. That's not necessary for you to forgive because patient forgiveness is not based on their performance. If you get nothing else this morning, listen to me now. Patient forgiveness is not based on their performance. It's based on you giving away what you've received from him. It's you giving the grace that allows you to forgive. So Jesus says in Mark chapter 11, verse 25, in another moment to the same group of people, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. God says, if you walk in here praising me and enjoying my presence and my renewed relationship with you because of the grace I gave you, And you walk into my presence, and that grace is not extended to everyone in your circle. Forgive them first. Give them what I'm giving you. And this is difficult. So I want to clear that up right now. And we've said over and over in this series, God does not ask you to deny your reality. He does not ask you to say you weren't hurt. He doesn't deny that you have to say, I'm My kids and I are living by ourselves without the income and without the protection and without health care and all of these things because he left me for another woman. That is true. There is nothing wrong with going before God and crying out to your father and saying, my life was wrecked by the decision this person made toward me. That's truth. And if you wonder how comfortable you can be with that, read the Psalms. Truth pours out of the Psalms, sometimes in awkward words and high emotions But it always comes back to, but God, but God, but God will. God can. So this is hard. I love verse 5 because it gets really real here. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Help. We might translate it this way. Are you kidding me? Seven times in a day and I'm supposed to act like they did? No, he didn't say act like they did nothing. He says, I'm going to give you a power. And so they called for the power, increase our faith. It's impossible 
Seven times in a day, slandering me, talking about me, telling falsehood against me because they didn't like me and ruining my reputation and taking something away from me, something valuable that I lost. And I'm supposed to just act like they didn't do it. He said, no, I need you. They didn't say increase our strength. They said increase our faith. And then Jesus says something totally weird in verse six. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Can I ask a question? Why would you plant a tree in an ocean? That seems dumb. And Jesus is making this incredibly big point by saying, you think it's impossible to forgive a person seven times in a day? I'm gonna give you the ability to do impossible things you've never imagined. You can move mountains into the sea and trees into the sea and they'll all grow. Why? Because I'm your power. I'm going to be the one who gives you what you need to do what I ask you to do. Remember, it's not a feeling that produces forgiveness. It's an action that produces the feelings. And so he's telling us where our power comes from. So we know that there's a goal to forgive, and that is to lovingly rebuke for restoration. We know that there's a plan, and that is to choose in advance to offer grace Lastly, forgiveness is a patient acceptance of grace giving. There's a Greek word used for forgive in Luke 17. It's an interesting word because it's found in other places and it's not translated forgive. In Matthew chapter 3, you just might want to write this down if you're taking notes. Matthew 3.15, there's a moment where Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptist. And John sees Jesus and he says, behold the Lamb of God. John knows this is the Messiah that they have waited for for centuries. And when he comes over the hill, he says to John, baptize me. And John says, I can't baptize you. You should baptize me. And Jesus uses this word and he says to him, suffer it. Suffer it. Do it. Let it be done. Just do what I ask you to do. Suffer it. It's an interesting expression. And John accepts this. And he baptizes Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. And in that moment, the surrender of Jesus to God, and then he sent, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, comes down upon him, and then he's sent into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days. He began the process. There's also in Matthew chapter 18, you might want to write it down. Jesus tells the story of a king who was owed by one of his servants, 10,000 talents. Now, in our audience, we're like, what's a talent? 10,000, that's $10,000, not that big of a deal. Stop. 10,000 talents would have been such an astronomical number that some scholars say this would be the equivalent of 100 to $200 million owed by one man to the king. And if you owed the king, you better pay the king because the king owned your life. And he could take you out if he was done with you. So when Jesus told this story, it was an impossible, astronomical amount that was owed. And it says the king forgave him. Nope, it says the king suffered it. The king no longer demanded the payment due him. Forgiveness is no longer demanding the payment you are due. And don't deny for the second that you're not due it. It is yours. They did this to you. They should pay They should be sorry. They should be broken. They should restore everything they stripped from you. But you suffer it. You're willing to no longer accept or expect payment. So how do we do this? First of all, measure the loss. 
Measure the loss. Be honest about what's been lost in your life. It is not petty to announce that you've been wronged, that you've been harmed, but we don't announce that to the crowds. We don't announce it to the person's family. We don't announce it so everyone hates the person. That's taking payment. We're refusing to take the payment. We're measuring the loss. How do we do that? We accept the loss by grace. And and I know this is so much easier for me to stand up here and say this than for you to experience it. It's easier to preach this message and live it. And I'll be obligated to live it too. But we can become really passive aggressive with taking payment that's not given to us. We ice them out. I'm not saying don't protect yourself. If someone has physically or sexually harmed you or threatened you, you're not obligated by Jesus to open your home and just let them have everything they want anytime they want it. No, boundaries are not ungodly. Boundaries are safety. But to ice a person out, to to not be kind or, yeah, kind's the best word to use. To not put yourself in a position to respect the dignity and the image they're made of in God. It's, it's not talking to everybody about them. We take payment when we slander people and we let everybody know, don't, don't work with them, don't deal with them, don't be around them. And we're taking payment in every possible way we can. And Jesus is asking us not to do this. He's saying, allow, and I'll show you how that happens in a little bit. He's telling you, allow the fact that you refuse to take payment for this. The king suffered the debt. John suffered the experience because it needed to happen. You see this, right? We are only doing what Jesus did for us. Isn't it powerful to admit this morning in worship that Jesus did not ice us out? He did not slander us. He did not keep us from blessing. He did not tell everyone what a horrible human being we were. He suffered our sin on the cross and put it away. He took all the payment and expected no payment in return. This is where we get the strength to offer what is impossible. This is how we move a tree to the middle of the ocean and it continues to grow. It seems impossible for us. It's not impossible by faith because our faith is in him. Look at me at verses 7 through 10. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Jesus is teaching directly here. What I'm asking you to do may seem impossible, but I am going to give you the ability. A servant in Jesus' day was not someone stripped from their land against their will and sold as a piece of meat. A servant was someone who owed somebody something and could not pay him back. And so they would be called indentured servants. They would work until they paid off their debt and then they would be free. And this is what is common in the New Testament. It's misunderstood by our critics, but it's often the common expression of what it meant to be a servant, a debtor who owed a debt. And so in this moment, Jesus said, if you owe a debt to your master and he simply asks you to do what you agreed to do, is it noble for you to do what your duty was? No, it's the right thing to do. So he says, when it comes to forgiveness, remember the debt I paid for you. And by remembering the debt I paid for you, can you not suffer the debt somebody else owes you to show the same grace? It's the core behind it all. 
Turn to Romans chapter 12, if you would, this morning. I want to show you in another passage of your New Testament what this looks like in the great letter to the churches in Rome. There's a powerful moment when you get into chapter 12. Paul has this tendency in most of his writing, not all of it, but most of it, he writes the doctrine. He states the whole exegetical proof of why this is important, what it means about God the Son, God, or God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And he shows us all this. And then there always seems to be this element in his writing. At the back half of his letters, he tells us how to live it. I believe in Romans chapter 12, he's getting into the how do you live this now? If all of this about grace is true, how do you live this out? And you heard it read over you this morning. We all know, right, that we, our hearts are involuntarily, we have a default. It, I may be the only person in the room. So Thursday night and Sunday morning early service, people looked at me like I was the only person in the room. I don't believe it because maybe I don't want to. But am I the only person in, the, in this room who actually feels like when they're hurt, they have the right to hurt back? And when they're slandered, they have the right to tag back? Am I the only person in the room who, when they accidentally physically get hurt, wants to hurt somebody or something quickly? I know some of you are looking like, this is my preacher. Sorry, you're stuck with me. I remember a moment, I've told this story often, I realized how broken I was when I was holding my three-month-old son, as cute as can be, my firstborn, and I was playing with him, and he thought I was hilarious, so I loved him back, and we were having a great moment, and he lost control of his head, and it busted me in the mouth. His forehead hit me in the mouth and cut my lip, and I would love to say as a father, I picked him up and said, to you precious child, you didn't mean it. Father, forgive him. He knew not what he did. No, I wanted to hurt him. I found myself going, how do you like it? I was like, what am I doing? (laughs) Child I love. And my default was not grace. My default was hurt me. I'm going to hurt you worse. Why? So you don't do that again. Talk about me. I'm going to tell people truth about you. So you never have a voice again. I'm not the only person, am I? Whose default is evil for evil. So Paul says, when the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, builds our lives, The Holy Spirit begins to do something that's incredibly necessary. Look at verse 10. Oh, and by the way, when times get tough, the disciples were honest. Lord, increase our faith. When I read these verses, I'm going to pause and you feel free to join me. Which actual words? If this is hard to hear and you know you can't, pray with me as we read this text with these words. Lord, Increase my faith. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in love. Honor honor one another above yourselves. Lord, increase my faith. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Lord, increase my faith. Verses 17 and 18, do not repay evil or anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Lord, increase my faith. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Lord, increase my faith. See, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul are not denying the truth that evil exists. They're not denying the truth that people harm others. 
They're not denying the truth that sometimes ridiculous things are done to you and forgiveness just seems like a cursory, let's act like it didn't happen. No, they're saying evil will never be beaten by evil. It will only be beaten by grace, truth, and love. And we are the people who have received grace, truth, and love. So we bless, we forgive, we seek peace. We do not strike back evil for evil. We'll change the world by grace. How do we do this? How does the person who harmed you in that moment that you actually have to forgive, not your willingness to forgive, but that moment that you actually have to forgive, where does this come from? It doesn't come from dismissing evil. It comes from verse 19, where we're told, do not take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath. You and I get to dispense grace from the throne of God, but we never get to sit in the seat of judgment. We get to dispense the grace of God, but we never are asked at any point in time to sit on the judgment throne. Jesus is the only one worthy to do that. You may know what have happened, but you don't know the heart of the persons involved. The pain in your life is real. The harm done to you is real, but the seat of judgment is only filled by Jesus Christ. Leave room for God's judgment because God is rebuking sin for repentance so that he may forgive. Should they not accept the rebuke and continue in sin, they will face judgment. Or one of the scariest sentences in all of scripture, or at least my understanding of the totality of scripture is this, God will give you what you ask for. If you ask for judgment, he will bring you judgment. If you ask for mercy, Jesus Christ brought you mercy. As servants of God, we're only doing, we're only giving back what we've received. It's a hard teaching. It's a real teaching. For some of you, you've never received the grace. You've never accepted the forgiveness. You've never listened to the rebuke of your sin. Your heart knows you've sinned. Your heart knows you're in rebellion. But in our stubbornness, we refuse to listen. Listen to the words of Jesus offer you mercy before he brings judgment. Because that's what he wants you to have. The first, not the last. To those of us who have received grace, may grace pour out of us rather than judgment. May we call out sin because we love and may we forgive because we love and the Holy Spirit will strengthen us to do each of these. As impossible as they sound, we can plant trees in the middle of the ocean with the faith that God can do the impossible through us. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.